When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How do you know that the men of genius whom all the world trusts have not also seen visions? Здравствуйте, дорогие друзья. Hey, everyone. In Russian literature, Tolstoy is the great sociologist, Dostoevsky the astute psychologist, and Turgenev a great artist, Gogol a comic genius, Pushkin and Lermontov great romantic poets. But what about Anton Chekhov, the father of short stories? He didn't moralize like Tolstoy, he didn't psychoanalyze like Dostoevsky, he didn't talk of nihilism like Turgenev. He was an artist of the mundane. He captured life as it is, not as it ought to be. His storytelling style has given us the term Chekhov's gun, a storytelling device. His influence on writers who came after him was immense. For example, you can see Chekhov's pessimism in the works by Albert Camus and Franz Kafka. As a doctor, Chekhov saw the brutal reality of existence, people battling with terrible illnesses to survive for another day. So to escape this harsh reality, he took refuge in literature. He says, quote, Medicine is my lawful wife and literature is my mistress. So today I'll discuss his life, tell you about some of his stories and discuss his genius writing style. I will also tell you how and why Chekhov revolutionized Russian literature and storytelling in general. I will also make a comparison between Chekhov and Albert Camus, especially on their life's philosophy that we are not driven by will to life, nor power, nor happiness, but something else. So get yourself some Russian vodka and let's talk Chekhov. Anton Chekhov was born in 1860 in Taganrog in the south of Russia, just one year before the emancipation of Serbs in 1861. Also, 1860s is one of the most important decades in Russian literature that produced Turgenev's Fathers and Sons, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, and Tolstoy's War and Peace. So baby Chekhov was growing up while Russia was waking up as a literary giant. Unlike most Russian writers, Chekhov was born into a merchant family close to the peasantry, and his grandpa was a serf, so he understood life at the bottom. Like Kafka, Chekhov's father plays a lot of negative male roles in his short stories. His mother told him many stories, which must have inspired Chekhov to do the same, tell stories. Chekhov says of his parents, quote, Our talents we got from our father, but our soul from our mother. He attended a Greek school where he ironically failed the main subject, Greek. Greek is not an easy language. But things were not looking up in Chekhov's family. When he was 16, his father went bankrupt in 1876. 
To avoid jail, which Charles Dickens' father and Cervantes' father had to endure, Chekhov's father was smart, so he fled to Moscow, leaving the little Chekhov to deal with the money issues by selling the household stuff and talking to the bailiffs. Not only that, he managed to work by drawing, writing funny stories for the newspaper, and tutoring children so he could send money to his family in Moscow. Not just that, he also wrote funny letters to his family to cheer them up. What a son, kudos to the teenage Chekhov. Most teenagers dream of having such freedom, but little we know that it always comes with responsibility. The teenage Chekhov had to help his family financially and keep their morale by telling great stories. To pass the time, Chekhov also read a lot of fiction like Don Quixote, Oblomov, Fathers and Sons, and philosophical books like Schopenhauer's Will and Representation. He was also busy chasing women, having affairs with older women, including the wife of one of his teachers. He really was walking in the shoes of a grown-up man. In 1879, when he was 19, he managed to join his family in Moscow. Not only that, he managed to enter Moscow State Medical University. The man was a genius. Without help from his parents, he did all of that. It took him four years to get his doctor's qualification from universities, so in 1884 he started working for little or no money treating the poor. He had come from poverty and he wanted to give something back, but it all had come at a cost to his own health. A year after starting work as a physician, he contracted tuberculosis, but he kept it hidden from his family despite coughing blood. All the while, he wrote short stories like crazy to make enough money for his family to move to a better place. Just like Franz Kafka, it was his writing that kept him going. Things were looking up as his stories were appreciated by many readers. It's amazing how readers can help keep an artist alive simply by appreciating the art. Not just readers, he also became well known among the intellectuals and writers. In 1888, Chekhov's book, At Dusk, a collection of short stories, won the prestigious Pushkin Prize. Now Russia had a new 26-year-old artistic genius in the making. Dostoevsky had died in 1881 and Tolstoy was getting old, so Russia needed a younger blood and Chekhov announced himself, not by writing big brick-like novels, but short stories. In 1887, while traveling through the steppes of Ukraine, Chekhov was inspired to write a short story titled Step that was published in a literary journal, not some cheap newspaper. That same year, he was commissioned to write a play titled Ivanov, which became a huge success due to its realism. Chekhov became the painter of reality like no one else. He painted the mundane and the everyday. This was revolutionary. But most crucially, by writing a play, he learned that he couldn't afford to write more or less but what was needed to tell the story. This became known as Chekhov's gun. What does it mean? It basically boils down to this, that everything in the story should have a purpose. Quote, remove everything that has no relevance to the story. If you say it in the first chapter that there's a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. In other words, every object in the story is required. Nothing extra or superfluous should be mentioned. He invented the art of tidy storytelling that has become mainstream today. 
1890, Chekhov took his gun, just kidding, no gun, and headed east to a penal colony on the island of Sakhalin, just north of Japan. This trip was an eye-opener for him. He witnessed so many horror stories of how cruel humans can be. He wrote, quote, There were times I felt that I saw before me the extreme limits of man's degradation. He even witnessed the children as young as six following their chained convicted fathers and sleeping in the same room with other criminals. Just like Dostoevsky, Chekhov understood how complex humanity was. Despite their gruesome crimes, he wanted the authorities to treat the convicts more humanely. His Sakhalin writing has been incredibly influential not only on the issue of human rights but also on other writers including Haruki Murakami and Seamus Heaney, both of whom has dedicated something in their own works. Also, I should make comparison between him and George Orwell's writing while a homeless in Paris and London as well as his travels to Wigan Pier. So to become a writer with depth, one must see harsh reality of life. Tolstoy fought in the Crimean War of 1850s, while Dostoevsky spent years in the Siberian labor camp as a prisoner. On his return from Sakhalin, Chekhov became serious in his medical practice. Quote, if I am a doctor, then I need sick people in a hospital. And if I am a writer, then I need to live among people, not on Malaya Demotrovka, a posh street in Moscow. And I need a piece of social and political life. So he moved to a village some 80 kilometers south of Moscow, a place called Melikhovo, where he spent about six years practicing as a doctor, but also writing some of his best works. For example, in 1894, he wrote The Seagull, one of his greatest plays. Two years later, he wrote Uncle Vanya. Also around this time, Chekhov said goodbye to God and religion to become an atheist. He had seen so much suffering, especially among children, that shook his faith in God Almighty sitting pretty while all these kids were dying for no reason. His own health was also getting worse, so he made a move to a warmer place. In 1898, he bought a house and moved to Crimea, where he would entertain giants like Leo Tolstoy and Maxim Gorky. Here, he also wrote some of his best plays like The Cherry Orchard. Not just that, he also married Olga, but they lived somewhat independent lives, Chekhov in Crimea and Olga in Moscow. The long-distance relationship must have been good and bad, but around this time, Chekhov wrote one of his most famous short stories, the lady with a dog, about the love affair between two married people. So who knows, he might have had something going. Everything starts with a casual encounter and soon gets very serious very quickly. Life, however, is very cruel. Chekhov's health continued to deteriorate. He made a trip to a spa town in Germany. He would not return to Russia alive. He died on July 15, 1904, aged 44. His body was taken to Russia and buried in Moscow next to his father. He was one of the most famous writers in Russia at the time, perhaps only second to Tolstoy. But what's remarkable is that Tolstoy didn't have to work a day in his life. I mean to earn a living because he was a count, meaning he had a lot of disposable income passed on to him from his family. Chekhov had to work his arse off to feed his family even as a teenager. Even as a doctor, he worked among the poorest of the poor. But despite all his hardship and suffering he encountered, he made the most of his life by writing some of the most beautiful stories you will ever read. 
dark, humorous, pessimistic, but they're all real. Genuine stories of genuine people. He was writing about people who had no voice in literature to the point that his writing was laughed at in some circles as unattractive and unappealing as human waste, as one British journalist put it. But slowly he found his readers in the West, especially among the new breed of writers such as James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, George Bernard Shaw, Ernest Hemingway, Vladimir Nabokov, and later on Raymond Carver. Today, Chekhov is recognized as one of the geniuses of Russia who revolutionized storytelling by focusing on the ordinary and turning them into extraordinary stories. Today, Chekhov is considered the father of short stories and one of the finest Russian writers of all time. For the summary of some of Chekhov's stories, I reached out to Chekhov and Chill on Instagram who kindly read and summarized two of Chekhov's best short stories and two plays here for you to see and judge the genius of Russian doctor-turned-artist. I'll leave her Instagram link in the description, so go and follow her for great content on Russian literature. Man in a Case Chekhov wrote Man in a Case in 1898. Some say it was written in response to Tolstoy's short story How Much Land Does a Man Need, in which a man who is so greedy that he perishes in his pursuit of owning more land. Tolstoy finally buries his character in a tiny grave as an ironic answer to the question How much land does a man really need? What is the story of a man in a case? Teacher narrates to his friend the story of one of his former colleagues, an absurdly reclusive Greek teacher named Belikov. Belikov is someone who takes every effort not only to remove himself from any kind of community, progress and joy, but ensures that those around him do the same. He isolates himself physically, walking around in constant shroud of dark coats, hats, sunglasses and umbrellas, but nevertheless imposes his presence on others, coming to the apartments of his colleagues and sitting there for hours in complete silence. His fear of change spreads to those around him and the whole town is kept in dread and stagnation by his presence. Things change when a new teacher, Kovalenko, comes to town with his sister, Varenka. These newcomers are cheerful and charming, and even Belikov finds himself gravitating towards Varenka. The townspeople start bringing Belikov and Varenka together, hoping for a marriage, but Belikov hesitates to take his major step. One day, Belikov sees Varenka riding a bicycle with her brother. He is scandalized by this and comes to Kovalenko to complain. Kovalenko, however, takes none of his nonsense and throws him down the stairs. Vorenka witnesses the end of this scene and laughs at Belikov. This is too much for Belikov to bear, so he falls ill and dies soon after, looking happier than ever in his coffin. The townspeople are momentarily relieved to be free of his oppressing presence, but soon find themselves reverting back to the same stagnation that they lived in before. Proving that while Belikov took living in a case to the extreme, people confine themselves to cases all on their own. Gooseberries Published in 1898, Gooseberries is a short story by Anton Chekhov. What's the story? A veterinarian narrates to his friend the story of his younger brother, Nikolai. Nikolai devoted his whole life to one goal, to buy the state of his dreams, one with gooseberry bushes. 
As Nikolai works towards his goal, he becomes twisted and corrupt, even starving his elderly wife to save money for the state. Eventually, he does purchase the state, and the narrator recounts visiting him there. Nikolai's state is a twisted version of his idealized dream. It is polluted, bare, and corrupt, reflecting the soul of its owner. Still, Nikolai fools himself into thinking that his goals have been achieved, and the narrator finds himself repulsed by his brother's greed, apathy, and delusional sense of self-importance. Disturbed and disgusted by the encounter, the narrator muses on how easy it is for those who achieve positions of privilege to remain in self-satisfied complacency and ignores the suffering that occurs around them. Here's a quote from the story. And such a state of things is evidently necessary. Obviously, the happy man is at ease only because the unhappy ones bear their burdens in silence. If there were not this silence, happiness would be impossible. It's a general hypnosis. Behind the door of every contented, happy man, there ought to be someone standing with little hammer and continually reminding him with a knock that they are unhappy people, that however happy he may be, life will sooner or later show him its claws, the trouble will come to him, illness, poverty, losses, and then no one will see or hear him, just as now he neither sees nor hears others. But there's no man with a hammer, the happy man lives at his ease, faintly fluttered by small daily cares, like an aspen in the wind and all is well. The Seagull is a play written in 1895 and first performed in 1896. It tells the story of Constantin, a young, sensitive man hoping to become a playwright. He lives with his uncle on a country estate. His mother, Arkadina, is an egotistical and overbearing actress visiting the state with her lover, Trigorin, a famous writer. Constantin is in love with Nina, a young girl who lives nearby and hopes to become an actress herself. Other characters gather around the state to watch Constantin's attempt at a play, including the philosophical and detached doctor, Dorn, and the almost comically gloomy Marsha. Various love triangles and complex relationships form. Notably, Nina falls for Trigorin. Two years later, the same group gathers at the very same state. Nina's life has been tragically marked by her romance with Trigorin, who abandoned her and went back to Arkadina, and her failure as an actress. Constantine, already depressed, is even further devastated by the encounter with her. The play ends with Constantine's suicide. It's here that Chekhov's famous gun is at play. Also, the play alludes to Shakespeare's Hamlet through various similarities. The Cherry Orchard was written in 1903 and published a year later. The play opens with Lubov Andreevna Ranevskaya returning to her childhood home from Paris. The Ranevsky state used to be grand and prosperous, and their cherry orchard was a point of fame and pride. But times have changed, the orchard no longer bears fruits, and the family is broke. Lubov Andreevna and most of her family are hopelessly stuck in the past, unable to accept their imminent financial ruin, much less do anything to prevent it. The family is offered a solution by Lopakhin, a wealthy merchant whose forefathers were serfs on the state, and who has been in love with Ranevskaya since childhood. However, the family is ultimately unable to take action. Lopakhin ends up buying the state, intending to chop down the orchard to make room for cottages. 
On the scale of one family in state, Chekhov tells the story of an entire country on the verge of transformation. Style Nothing is resolved. One of the first things you notice when you read Chekhov is that he never gives you an answer to life's problems. It feels as though his stories are abandoned. He just paints life as it is. This was in reaction to other Russian writers who came before him. I would say in particular in response to Tolstoy who never stopped moralizing in his books. Dostoevsky too had a political stance in his novels, especially his anti-Western sentiment. So naturally Chekhov took a neutral stance towards morality, politics and religion. He just looked at reality and reported how he saw it. And that made him very unique and distinct from other Russian writers. In many ways he's a bit closer to Turgenev as both were genuinely artists first. If you have read him and think Chekhov's stories may seem inconclusive, you're not alone. Here's a quote from the English novelist Virginia Woolf. But is it the end? We ask. We have rather the feeling that we have overrun our signals, or it is as if a tune had stopped short without the expected chords to close it. These stories are inconclusive, we say, and proceed to frame a criticism based upon the assumption that these stories ought to conclude in a way that we recognize. In so doing, we raise the question of our own fitness as readers. Where the tune is familiar and the end emphatic, lovers united, villains discomfited, intrigues exposed, as it is in most Victorian fiction, we can scarcely go wrong. But where the tune is unfamiliar and the end a note of interrogation or merely the information that they went on talking, as it is in Chekhov, we need a very daring and alert sense of literature to make us hear the tune, and in particular those last notes which complete the harmony. Basically, Chekhov didn't want to change the world based on a particular value system. As a doctor, he couldn't judge people, and as an artist and a storyteller, he kept his tales as objective as possible. Here's a quote. I think that it's not for writers to solve such questions as the existence of God, pessimism, etc. The writer's function is only to describe by whom, how, and under what conditions the questions of God and pessimism were discussed. Another important element of Chekhov's storytelling is, is minimalistic description. Today Chekhov's gun simply means only stick to what is important to the story. Do not introduce a gun in scene 1 unless it goes off by the end of the story. In other words, keep your stories as minimal and precise as possible. Remove all the fluffs and keep it to its bare bones so to speak. Why? Because peasants don't have time to fluff. Chekhov understood that to get someone's attention, you must stick to what is important. Don't digress and don't talk about things that are not related to the story. In novels, you can get away with some fluff or digression, but in short stories, things are much more brutal. It's survivor of the finest, so minimalism has become synonymous with Chekhov's style. Here's what Maxim Gorky talks about Chekhovian simplicity. Quote, in the presence of Anton Pavlovich, Chekhov, everyone felt an unconscious desire to be simpler, more truthful, more himself, and I had many opportunities of observing how people threw off their attire of grand bookish phrases, fashionable expressions, and all the rest of the cheap trifles with which Russians, in their anxiety to appear Europeans, adorn themselves as savages deck themselves with shells and fishes' teeth. 
Chekhov emphasized the unsaid, silence, pauses, everything in between. Instead of adding more words, he focused on what was unsaid and verbalized. Human communication is often more non-verbal than verbal. So Chekhov was good at articulating the full spectrum of human communication. And often that means saying less is more. Follow intuition. Chekhov's stories are tales of the mundane. He didn't write about some great wars like Tolstoy did, or deep philosophical debates like Dostoevsky or Turgenev did, or social change like Gogol or Pushkin did. Instead, Chekhov wrote about the ordinary. How can you turn ordinary or banal into work of art? Here comes intuition. Intuition is often defined as a quick natural response we have to what we see or experience. It's the immediate response. So normally women claim to have a superior intuition than men because they notice smaller things, while men tend to focus on bigger things. Chekhov moved away from philosophy and politics and instead relied on his intuition to turn everyday people and experiences into great stories. Ultimately, we all, irrespective of our jobs and status, have an everyday life. We wake up, eat breakfast, put on our clothes, commute to work, sit in the office, talk to colleagues, go home, watch telly, and go to bed. There is nothing magical in our lives. So Chekhov understood the banality of life and made that his muse. What Chekhov saw was social paradoxes. He saw the contradictions between doctor and patients, between men and women, and between rich and poor. His stories are tales of juxtaposition between two opposites. We might not notice the power play between two people is always at play, but not always obvious. Chekhov as a doctor himself saw the powerlessness of patients, but most crucially the powerlessness of doctors in the face of immense human suffering. Here's an interesting fact. Chekhov was an obsessive gardener. He looked after plants. His short stories are about people as if they are plants. Humans are just plants in a garden we call society or a country. Some are weak, some are strong. They live in the same garden, yet each one has a different existence. Such is the nature of reality. This was revolutionary in Russia at the time. People were used to novels being moralistic. So their novels were packed with ideas and teachings. But Chekhov stripped his stories of any teaching. He wrote what he saw. He didn't judge them, he just depicted them as they were. Telling the truth, I have said this before that one of the most brilliant aspects of Russian literature is its brutal honesty in revealing the darker side of life. While literature is sometimes considered an escape from reality, Russian literature for me is a massive punch in the face that wakes you up to the harsher truths of life. Chekhov is no different from Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. He tells the truth as it is. And what's different about Chekhov is that he tells the truth from all sides. In Tolstoy's writings and to some extent Dostoevsky's and Turgenev's writings, they idolize the Russian peasants as almost godly and the source of inspirations. This makes sense because these writers came from an aristocratic background, so they felt that they had to revere the peasant, but also because peasant lived a more honest lives compared to the nobility who are pretentious and kept appearances. Now Chekhov doesn't paint a rosy picture of the peasants. He saw them just as flawed as the aristocrats. He saw them as dishonest at times as the ruling elite. Chekhov saw human nature in action. He didn't use his own preconception of how people behave. He saw how people behaved in real life. 
they lie, they steal, they do bad things as well as great things. So unlike other Russian writers, Chekhov didn't romanticize the Russian peasants. Here's a quote. A creed that teaches indifference to wealth, indifference to the convenience of life, and contempt for suffering is quite incomprehensible to the great majority who never knew either wealth or the convenience of life, to whom contempt for suffering would mean contempt for their own lives, which are made up of feelings of hunger, cold, loss, insult, and a hamlet-like terror of death. All life lies in these feelings, and life may be hated or weary of, but never despised. Yes, I repeat it, the teachings of the Stoics can never have a future. From the beginning of time, life has consisted in sensibility to pain in response to irritation. Will to Joy Schopenhauer said that we're driven by a blind will to life. We work and struggle to continue on living. Nietzsche said we are driven by will to power, but because we all want to be respected by our competence and power. Chekhov, however, says we are ultimately driven by a will to joy. Chekhov's stories are full of magical moments. He saw genuine joy in the midst of misery and hardship. It is these tiny moments that we really cherish in life. Yes, we love little moments of joys. That's our energy and that motivates us. Happiness is meaningless because it presupposes that we will be happy for a long period of life. But joy is always temporary, which is the truer goal of human existence. We live for these moments of joy. No matter how high a mountain we conquer, it's the joyous moment that motivates us and gives us enormous satisfaction. Chekhov's comet is always an awkward moment, an inappropriate moment which is paradoxical. While reading him, you notice the little things people do that bring a smile to your face. We all experience these things. In the midst of our hectic lives, we often see a little moment of joy. For example, a stranger smiling at you, someone keeping a door open for you, a cat walking past you. It makes sense because Chekhov lived with an illness himself, just like Camus who was also suffering from tuberculosis for most of his life. He knew that death was looming large. What makes humans distinct from other animals that we anticipate our death. Other animals may understand when it comes to them, but we know of our demise from an early period of life. So Chekhov not only anticipated his own death, he saw death on a daily basis as a doctor. As Martin Heidegger said, the true meaning of life is understanding that we have a finite amount of time. This awareness gives our lives authenticity. So Chekhov's stories are a snapshot of life, a moments of tragedy sprinkled with moments of joy. That's real life. No matter who you are, we all live in a mundane life, and these moments of joys are precious, no matter how miserable life can be. Chekhov and Camus had a lot in common. Both suffered from the same illness, tuberculosis. They also had a deep love for storytelling, especially theater. They also shared a philosophy that life is made of little moments of joy. Camus' myth of Sisyphus is precisely that. Sisyphus is condemned to push a rock up a mountain. Perhaps his only joy is the short interval between him getting to the top before he has to go back down. It's the same for us all. Our little moments of joy is meeting a friend, having a nice meal, sharing a drink, talking to loved ones, getting a nice comments from you beautiful people on YouTube, etc. A long, continuous state of happiness is a myth pushed onto us by fairy tales like Cinderella. 
Anton Chekhov is funny like Gogol, artistic like Turgenev, profound like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, but he was different from all of them. He rose from the bottom of the Russian society, so he understood real pain and real suffering. As a dutiful doctor and objective artist, he removed himself from his stories. His opinions or worldview didn't matter. He made himself invisible in his stories. His stories are all about the characters. He didn't care about how the world should be or how we can make things better. All Chekhov was concerned was to depict the world how it was reality that's it to the point that sometimes he appears heartless Chekhov depicts nature and reality without moral judgment he was a doctor educated in physical science therefore everything had to be concretized for example a man falls in love with a woman for her white teeth or her breasts shallow yes but nature is deep and shallow we all are that is Chekhov's intuition that saw the paradox of life Dostoevsky wanted Russia to return to its olden traditional values. Tolstoy wanted Russia to be more just towards the poor. Turgenev wanted liberal values to take root in Russia. Maxim Gorky wanted a socialist society that promoted equality for all. Chekhov, however, didn't write about how society should be. He wrote about what it is. He wrote about life's reality as it is. I'll leave you with a quote from another Russian writer, Vladimir Nabokov. Chekhov's genius almost involuntarily disclosed more of the blackest realities of hungry, puzzled, servile, angry peasant Russia than a, than a multitude of other writers, such as Gorky, for instance, who flaunted their social ideas in a precision of painted dummies. I shall go further and say that the person who prefers Dostoevsky or Gorky to Chekhov will never be able to grasp the essentials of Russian literature and Russian life. Thank you for listening. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.